when people see me authentically speaking out of the silence of my experience, maybe it gives them a little boost of courage to do the same. This is Daring to Tell, the podcast where writers read their true stories of personal daring. Then we talk about writing and life. I'm your host, Michelle Rado. Nothing's gonna make me brave. Nothing's gonna make me brave. Nothing's gonna make me brave except doing what makes me scared. For those of you who follow along with some of my recurring themes, you know that both walking and bugs occupy a significant part of my brain and sometimes my day. The first one for positive reasons, the second as an irrational fear I am trying to shake. Well, this past summer, I was on my morning walk. It was probably late July, early August, the time of summer when those nasty deer flies have mostly died off and grasshoppers are springing up through every sun-filled stretch of road. I had rounded the corner of my morning walk and was on the home stretch talking on the phone when all of a sudden I heard a mini buzzsaw noise and like a drone about 10 feet in front of me, something levitated straight up into the air. Vertical as a ruler, about five or six feet off the ground, it was squarely in my path. I screeched to a halt. What is that? I exclaimed to my mom, who I was on the phone with, and I told her what had happened. It was a grasshopper. The grasshopper kept hovering like a helicopter, absolutely static. I was careful to look behind me as I made a big loop around this hovering creature, walked around it out into the road, adrenaline pumping a little bit inside of me. It seemed otherworldly. What the heck was that? Later on, I was at home. I wanted to look it up and I discovered Yes, grasshoppers can hover. This is what I found at the University of Wyoming Entomology website. The Carolina grasshopper is a strong, adept flyer. During warm, sunny days, the adults frequently fly over bare ground interacting with one another. Males are noted for their hovering flight. They rise almost vertically from the ground to heights of three to six feet, occasionally higher, and hover for 8 to 15 seconds. During the hovering flight, they produce a soft, sibilant sound. Wow. So what does a hovering grasshopper have to do with today's episode, you may be wondering? Well, the way that that grasshopper rose up directly in front of me feels very much like certain sorts of themes that sometimes seem to place themselves squarely in the middle of my path. Silence lately is just one of those things. Can silence loom, hover? I think it can. Today's story is about a silence that begins as a necessity, is practiced and learned and then embodied, even becoming a sort of way of life that later on turns out 
not to be really working anymore. My guest today is Melanie Brooks, and this is my second conversation with her. We first spoke in April of 2022 when she read a section from what was at that time her manuscript, A Hard Silence. So when I heard that her manuscript was going to be published, I was so excited for her, and I knew I wanted to talk with her again about what happened in the development of her work from manuscript to finished book. And our conversation pretty much begins with that. Let me first catch you up on what the book is about so you can follow along with us. It is the story of how her father, a surgeon, contracted HIV from a tainted blood supply during life-saving heart surgery. That was back in 1985 when HIV AIDS was an exploding epidemic that was both deadly and held huge social stigma. Melanie was only 13 when this happened. Her story takes place mostly in New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, Canada, where she grew up, and at a time when AIDS meant rapid decline and death for so many, her dad, in fact, lived for 10 years. So on one hand, it was a huge gift of time to have with him, yet also a very long time to live with such a deep secret. And through such formative years, of course, from being a teenager to a young adult. Melanie also was the only girl in her family. She was third in birth order, so two older brothers, one younger brother. And because her youngest brother was only eight when this happened in their family, the fact of their dad's disease was even kept entirely from him for many years. So the silence was not only external, but internal within the family as well. We pretty much jump right into a discussion of how and when she found her publisher. Huge congratulations, first of all, from us, us here, the royal we at Darrington. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. And thanks for having me back. It's exciting to be back at this stage of the process. Yes, yes. So, Mostly, I have been just dying to ask you and not asking you until this very moment, is for you to talk about what it was like since when last we spoke on the microphone, Mm -hmm. you were looking for a publisher. I think you were going the indie publisher route at that point. And frankly, I think I remember you feeling a little like... I'm getting to the end of what kind of options I might have out there. Is that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was a five-year journey to get this book published. You know, I started looking for a publisher for it in 2017 when I published my first book, which we've talked about before. Yeah. Um, And it was a long and arduous journey to find a publisher who was willing to take on this project. And I think in some ways, initially, it might be seen as kind of a risky book because it's a story from the past that, you know, maybe at the time when I was initially kind of looking into it, people might have thought did not have a lot of relevance to today. Hmm. I think that has changed post-COVID. Yeah. But yeah, it, it was a long process. And so pretty discouraging one. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It it had kind of its ups and downs. And so it's 
kind of really wonderful to be on this side of it where I have a published book. I'm out yeah. on book tour right now and finally getting to do the thing that I wanted to do, which is talk about this story with other people. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So what was it like when you got the yes from Vine Leaves Press? Mm-hmm. What is the publisher of your book? So what what happened? How did that happen? And what was the story basically from acceptance to coming out? Because I'm just so curious to hear what you worked on with them. So a friend of mine had published with Vine Leaves Press and had done some, actually a couple of friends had published with them. And I talked to them a little bit about it. And this one particular friend had been doing some editorial work for them. And so I approached her and just said, you know, I'd love to talk to you about Vine Leaves. I'd love to talk to you about your experience. And, you know, we had a nice chat and she said, you know, would you like me to kind of connect you with the publisher And at that stage, I was so kind of gun shy about the fact that um, the book had gone through a number of rejections, you know, and so I didn't want somebody recommending it without having read it. And so I said that to her and she said, oh, I'd be happy to read it. And this is a friend that I did my MFA with and we were kind of in the MFA program briefly together. But I've gotten to know her since. And she's somebody who would never tell you she liked something if she didn't, you know. And so there's a little bit of trepidation sending it to her as well. Yeah, I also was kind of at a place like if there's something really wrong with this book, I'd like to know, you know, and she'd be somebody who might tell me. And so I sent it to her and she's a college professor and busy writer herself. And it took her about three months before she got back to me. And she got back to me with this beautiful note of how much she loved the book. And also with the fact that in that time frame, she had been hired as Vine Leaf Press's um, acquisitions editor for nonfiction. And so she said, not only do I love your book, but I'd love it to be my first acquisition with that I recommend to Vine Leaves. And so she wrote a beautiful recommendation for it. And then it ended up getting accepted by the publisher. So it was this really beautiful kind of, you know, it it meant so much to me again, because this isn't somebody who's just going to say nice things to me because they're my friend. Yeah. 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 she She really believed in this book. And so she actually ended up being my developmental editor through oh. all the way through. Her name is Alexis page. She's a lovely person. And she, the care that she took of this book in that editorial process. Yeah. I couldn't have asked for anything better. You know, she really understood what I was trying to do with it. She really understood what was important in that book. And so the work we did together, prepping it for publication was really, really meaningful for me. That's amazing. I mean, that just sounds like the perfect person way route. It really was. And I think in some ways, you know, I've talked to people about, because my first book published with a bigger publisher and, you know, this is a smaller independent publisher. And I've talked to people about the difference, you know, in publishing yeah. with a big publisher versus a smaller one. And I think this is one of those examples of the difference, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of close personal attention doesn't always happen. Right. And I, I don't want to say, you know, across the board because yeah. I, I don't know, but doesn't mm-hmm. always happen at the larger publisher scale. 
And Mm -hmm. so one advantage of publishing with a small press for me has been that this book was taken such good care of and, you know, from start to finish, you know, and continues to be. One of those things I imagine or hear about, you know, sort of an indie versus going with one of the large publishers can be the title. Right. Was that something that was an easy keep for them? Did you, you know, cause I knew that it was that title before. It was, it was, we, you know, we spent a lot of time working on the subtitle. <laughs> yes. Right. Yep, like, so yep. There was a lot of kind of work done with that, not just with the publisher, but with other writer friends who, you know, yeah. who helped me with that too. But the title even the cover, you know, they don't guarantee that you'll take your their your input. Like our our right. publisher is actually also the cover artist, and she oh, does okay. amazing work. Wow! But she really listened to what I was looking for in terms of a cover, and I was so pleased with that. Yeah. Whereas you know sometimes in the larger presses you have zero input. Exactly. Yeah, so. yeah. I was wondering about that. Well, I mean, it's eye grabbing. And it kind of says a lot right there with that right. picture. Right. It's, I, it's a padlock around a chain, a chain link. And it's like, yeah. mm, this is what was going on. Yeah. In many ways, I see that as my padlock, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's yeah. a padlock that I locked around yeah. my own experience, you right. know, not right. so much that it was a force, like I was chained, yeah. right? Like it's exactly. in many ways, it's the padlock that I locked around my own willingness to speak about this story. Right. And that's, oh my God, for memoir, it's so often we are the ones that hold the key. I feel like that's a song lyric somewhere or something. I don't right. know, but you know. The but I do believe that, like I was had. the one with the key, Yeah, right? Like yeah. the whole time I yeah. was the one with the key. Right. We just got to wait for the right, right moment. Exactly. So the other thing that I thought after reading this published book version in reading your manuscript is I will describe it as I have a funny little story. When I first started doing radio writing, I had to write like promos for shows. And it was like a lot of like, take this, copy it there, translate, make it ready for broadcast. Um, And at some point, someone said, you know, Maybe it would be good if you worked with an editor because I think I was not really doing whatever needed to be done. And so it was, I was highly insulted and, you know, I was in my 20s. I was very young. And so I started sending my 30 second spots to this editor. Well, it would come back. He was a brilliant writer, by the way. Like, I mean, he was really good. And he would send stuff back to me and I would go, well, isn't that what I said? <laughs> right, right. So I think sometimes working with a good editor, I mean, I can see that there are changes. And to me, it feels like, yes, this is what this book right. has meant to say all along. But what were the changes that happened? Because I'm guessing that there are changes that are different. Well, you know, you know, fortunately, there weren't a lot of content changes. You right. know, there was actually one chapter that we chose to leave out that just wasn't okay. serving the purpose of the story in any deep way. And yeah. partly because getting it to a certain word limit and page yeah. limit was important. And so there was a chapter we left out. But, you know, the editing was much more at the tight language level. I mean, one thing that 
she said was that I had to cut my adverbs and adjectives by close to half. And so, but that was a really good kind of revision process for me because that's, you know, it's like a little craft project, right? Yeah, exactly. You cut this down and it makes you really pay attention at the close level of language. Like what do you need? And, and that's what most of my edits were. There were a few places where she asked for a little bit more information or asked me to explain something a little bit more, but in most cases, content stayed the same, but it was really editing from a language perspective. Like let's make the language as tight and precise as we can. Yeah. Yeah. Because I would say smoother. It was like a bunch of smoothing that happened. And much of it, I was like, oh, yeah, I remember this. I remember that. And um, it that it now feels like the book that you meant it to be. Right. And I guess the other thing that I'm curious about that I wasn't sure I was going to ask you before or after, but let me ask you now because I feel like we're kind of there. Sure. This has always been a nonlinear story. Yes. In the way that you've yes. told it. Did any of the sequencing change in your developmental edit? The sequencing didn't really change, but the way that we tagged the time changed a little bit. You know, in my original manuscript, kind of whenever I switched from a nearer present moment to a moment in the past, I would put a time stamp. And there were ways that we were able to kind of keep the time frame recognizable without having to do that all the time. Like if one chapter had ended in a specific place in time and the next one was picking up at that same place of time, right? we didn't feel like we needed a timestamp, you know, right. like those kinds of things. Yeah. But none of the ordering, like none of the sequencing changed. Right, right. And I'm just curious to hear how you came to the, to the nonlinear right structure that you have right because on one hand you are jumping all over the place but on Mm -hmm. the other hand it's a very clear narrative flow Mm -hmm. so I imagine you spent a lot of time trying to figure that out I did I did and I knew really early on that it wasn't a story that could be told linearly you know kind of here's the beginning here's the ending Because so much of my understanding of what had happened to me in the past was being informed by events in the present. And so I knew it had to travel back and forth in time. But it also always felt like, like, rather than this smooth line, it just felt like this jumbled mass of threads, you know, and I, I always kind of talk about the writing process as like pulling on a thread going with that thread for a while and then finding another thread until it kind of unraveled. And so in many ways, you know, I talk about this book as being like a mosaic. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, kind of these pieces that I had to figure out how do they come together to create the whole. But I did, you know, I didn't want my reader to feel confused about time, you know, so I had to be really careful about how I, you know, kind of sequence the events. And one of the anchoring points that became, you know, really important that while, you know, kind of the story of the entire experience couldn't be told linearly, one of the threads is the therapy piece. And the one thing I could see as kind of a forward linear march was my time in therapy. And so I used those scenes in therapy as kind of anchor points 
along yep. the way to kind of create some of that forward movement. Yeah. You know? So that, that was really helpful when I kind of discovered that as a way to at least have kind of these signposts along the way that would give my reader some grounding in time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That definitely, I love those scenes with the therapy visits. They're just so, they are so grounding in there. Oh, you just bring us into really the the pain of facing what mm-hmm. you were going through and trying to unearth the emotion of it all. Right. I mean, we might get to that a little bit. I have a question about that, about sort of the repressed, the repressed tears. Sure. But let's hold on that one for okay. now too. And then if I might get a bit drilled down and almost even logistical about it, was there a point in your writing? And, and this is where I see the research of all the interviews that you did in writing hard stories, speaking with all these memoirists as a way to grapple with how will I tell this complex story? And there are many writers in there who have complex nonlinear stories. So anyone interested in the nonlinear story, this is, one piece of homework for you, get writing hard stories because there's so many great lessons through that. I just picture you like on your dining room table or living room floor or maybe many rooms of your house with literally shuffling paper around. I had cards at one point. That, and they were color-coded. You know, I had, you know, color-coded note cards. Like, the yellow ones were all the scenes from the past. Yeah, and yeah. The green ones were the more present scenes. The red yeah. ones were the therapy scenes. That, you know, and then I, yeah. I would kind of shuffle them around and kind of see what they did. for. And then I had, like, empty cards because those were the ones that – we're like, okay, well, if I'm going to put these two things side by side, something has to go in the middle to connect. Right. Right. Yes. So yes. it was, it was like a giant jigsaw puzzle. Yeah. In a lot of ways. I love that. I love the index card shuffling because I do think something is so large sometimes you need to really take over that physical space. And did you have outline points on each card? I think it was more it, at that point, most of the scenes were written. So yeah. it was kind of like scene of my echocardiogram, you know, right, scene right. with Will and the fishing rod. And, you know, like yeah, it was kind of yeah, like yeah. these moments that I had written through. Yeah. But then it was kind of, all right, how do I put those next to each other? Where do they go? And it, exactly. it literally was a shock, yeah. you know, yeah. and it filled my entire dining room table you know, but it was kind of a fun part of the project because it was like, I'm not, I'm not having to write right now. I'm just having to see how the writing fits together. Yeah. Do you think that there's something in that actual tactile experience? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I really do. For me, at least I had to see it in front of me. You know, I had to actually be able to look at it and, you know, visualize where the gaps were, visualize where the connective threads were. You know, I had to see it because when I was writing it, I had to very much keep it from being the whole in my head because that could be really overwhelming. And so when I was writing it, I was taking the advice of Joan Wickersham, who's one of the writers that I wrote about in Writing Hard Stories. She wrote the book, The Suicide Index, and talks about 
when she tried to approach, you know, her father's suicide as like a grand picture, she couldn't do it. But when she started taking it piece by piece, that's when she could start writing into the story. And so she had this beautiful quote called, let it be the, where she said to me, just let it be the pieces, you know? Mm. And I have used that again and again and again for myself, for students. So in the writing process, I had to just let it be the pieces. But then when I had the pieces, I had to see them all together to figure out how they fit. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, I love that because, and I'll confess, I'm still only halfway through (laughs) (laughs) writing hard stories. We'll talk about that. Why afterwards? But Joan Wickersham is one of them that like I stopped after your interview with her. I went and read The Suicide Index. That book I loved for that same reason again. And I don't know. I think there's something so compelling about the non- linear story and hers was such an inventive structure for it and you know yours became its own yeah of what your story needed to be but I really love when when and I and I and I think mostly it'll be writers who notice but I but you noticing like I love when people notice that it's an intentional act the crafting of you know kind of the ordering of the pieces. You know, I love that because that's, that's kind of a look at the artistic piece, right? I mean, I don't want readers necessarily to be like, oh, how did these fit together? And how didn't they, but you know, a lot of writers have read it and said, I can see what you were doing there. I can see how you were doing that. And, and that's, you know, that's very satisfying when you've spent a lot of time trying to figure something like that out. Yeah, yeah. It's very satisfying when people notice it. Exactly. Oh, well, I love it. I love <laughs> Good job. Very Thank good you. Job. Thank you. So at this point, let's hear some chapters. And sure. when last we had you, when it was a mere little manuscript, you read one of the chapters from your therapy office and I found it I was like oh that chapter's pretty much that one I think stayed almost the same or you know felt like very familiar yeah Yeah. this time different things were on my mind as I was reading Mm -hmm. and so I thought it would be interesting to hear a couple chapters from sort of the middle of the book a chapter called The Dress Rehearsal. There's going to be another one called The Rally. And then a very short chapter we'll end with that starts another section called Not the Most Wonderful Time of the Year. Maybe do you want to set up where we are in the story just so anyone who hasn't read it or been that familiar with it will be oriented? So this is in 1995. We're at year 10 after my dad was infected in 1985. We're nearing the end here of his life. And so this chapter called The Dress Rehearsal is actually like we thought this was it. And so just in terms of characters, got my mother and my father. I have three brothers, my brother Michael and Mark. They're my two older brothers, my younger brother David. I believe we talk about my husband, Chris, in here at some point, and also my sisters-in-law, Yvonne and Ellen. So I think those are the main characters that you'll find in these chapters. But if there's anybody else, I'll just jump in and tell you who they are. The one other thing, if you can briefly explain your parents' names. Dorothy and Orville Messenger. 
messenger. So at one point we hear a reference to the messenger way and that's right, the right. family way. Yes. And the other thing is the book in capitals. Do you oh, wanna... right. So the year my dad died, my parents published a book. The year, So in 1995, my parents wrote and published a book. It was no longer a secret by this point in time. I had gotten married and moved away. So in my life, it still felt very secretive, you know, kind of in my in my life away because I wasn't there for the kind of unburdening that happened when their book was published and the rally of support that they got around them. But at this point, my dad's illness is known. So if that okay. helps a little bit. And, yes. But when I talk about the book, that's what I'm that's what I'm referring, referring to. Referring to that book, to their book. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So whenever you are ready, why don't you introduce the chapter and begin the reading? Sure. This is a chapter called The Dress Rehearsal. I brushed away tears as anger surged up my spine. I wanted to kick something or someone, but I was fixed to this spot outside my parents' bedroom in the upstairs hallway of their Halifax home, staring at the paneled door that my brother Mark had just shut behind me, cutting me off from dad. I hadn't protested what was happening as it happened, and now there was no one to protest to. I was the only one out here. Mike, Mark, David, and Mum were still in the bedroom. I heard their muffled voices and movements on the other side of the door. They all had something to do, a role to play in this practical moment of care for my potentially dying father. I did not. This message was delivered loudly and clearly with the shutting of the bedroom door. My anger dissipated into the stifling air of the hallway. It's not fair, I whispered to no one. Dejection stepped in. I'd never felt so useless. It was the first week of August, and apprehension rode the air like an electric charge. Dad was sick, so sick, in fact, that Mum had called the family home. A week ago, Chris and I drove to Halifax under a cloud of anxiety, our vacation in Pennsylvania with my in-laws cut short. Michael and Yvonne flew in a day later from Toronto. David still lived at home, but was making preparations to leave for his first year of college. Though Mark had an apartment of his own downtown near the children's hospital where he was finishing up his second year of residency, for the past couple of days, he had camped out with the rest of us at the house. It's called pneumocystis pneumonia, or PCP, Mark explained on my first day home as I sat at the foot of the bed staring at Dad, shocked at the weakness of his form. My hand rested on his calf, the thick down comforter separating my skin from his. Even so, I felt the heat of his fever on my fingers. Six weeks earlier, after David's high school graduation, Dad had surgery to remove his gallbladder to alleviate the stomach issues that had landed him in the hospital before our visit. Chris and I had to leave Halifax for our friends Sherry's and Tim's wedding in Ottawa. Chris was the best man, and I was the matron of honor. After the wedding, when all signs pointed to a good recovery for Dad, we returned to Baltimore for a week and then continued with our plans to spend a few weeks with Chris's parents at the family farm that was their summer home. This new infection came out of nowhere and hit Dad hard. Despite efforts to keep the bedroom dim, afternoon sun leaked through the cotton drapes drawn across the patio doors, a pleasant breeze drifted past the open screens, and the curtain fabric fluttered across the carpeted floor. 
The bag of clear liquid hanging at the top of the IV pole next to the bed caught the light and reflected it in shards onto the wall above the headboard. Dad was sleeping comfortably as far as I could tell, but the pallor of his skin, his labored breathing, the wheeze in his lungs, audible above the hum of the portable machine that fed oxygen through a tube in his nostrils, spoke to a definitive shift in his health since I last saw him. It's what we call an opportunistic infection because it takes advantage of someone with a compromised immune system, like Dad, Mark continued. He fiddled with the IV tube as he spoke and then bent over to check the bag hanging off the side of the bed that I knew attached to Dad's catheter. So what does that really mean? I asked, wishing I understood the science of this mystifying disease. I relied on Mark to sidestep the euphemistic language my mother used to keep me from worrying and tell me the truth. Most of the time, he was good about it. It means we have to wait, he said with a sigh, leaning his weight on the pine bed post. Dark shadows under his eyes told me that being charged with the medical care to honor dad's desire to remain at home this time wasn't easy. Mark's wedding to Ellen was only two and a half weeks away, but the joy of their preparations was snuffed out by this latest crisis. The steroids we've given dad to help his lungs function take time to work. We have to wait and see what they do. We have to wait and see if these new antiviral meds knock down his fever. We just have to wait. So waiting was what we'd been doing for a week. None of us was willing to call what we were doing a death vigil but it looked and felt an awful lot like I imagined one would. During the daytime hours, we took turns sitting with Dad to make sure someone was always there when he woke up. When he did open his eyes, when he met our gaze and whispered hoarsely, How doing? We all flocked to his side to savor the minutes he was with us before fatigue and the fog of meds pulled him away once more. In each of these moments of lucidity, I was haunted by an all-too-familiar fear a looming question that for 10 years had attached to every holiday, every vacation, every visit, every phone call, every sign of illness. Is this it? I didn't know what signs to look for to answer this question, and I was too frightened to ask. Instead, I stayed with Dad as much as I could with the hope that seeing his daughter with her gift of cheerfulness when he woke up was doing as much to help him as the meds dripping from the IV bag into the bruised vein in his arm. Right before I was ousted to the hallway outside my parents' bedroom, I was sitting with Dad when he startled awake and said, The bed feels damp. I called downstairs to Mark and Mum, figuring that Dad's catheter might have leaked. I picked up the glass of water from the bedside table and asked Dad if he wanted a drink. He nodded, and I held the bent straw to his lips so he could take a sip. He gave me a weak smile and thanks, and then said, I think I wet the bed. His confession held a note of humor, but I also heard a tone of humiliation. Even at his most vulnerable, my father was a proud man. We'll fix it in a sec, Dad, I said. Hold tight. I wanted to reassure him and let him know that it wasn't a big deal. I took his hand and gave it a squeeze. Mark and Mum came in, followed by Mike and Dave. The sheets are wet, I told them, beginning to fold back the comforter to see if it was wet too. Mark was in doctor mode. He moved to the side of the bed where the catheter line wound under the covers and lifted them. His calf came loose, he said to Mum. I need to adjust it and we'll need to change the bed and his pajamas.
Dad was too weak to sit up on his own, and I recognized that we were all needed to move him off the wet linens to get the bed changed. Mom went in search of new sheets and pajamas while I moved to the other side of the bed with David, preparing to do my part to help lift Dad. Mel, Mark said, authority sharpening his voice. I looked up. Let's try and preserve Dad's dignity here. He nodded toward the door. You should go. Heat scalded my cheeks and resentment saturated my body. I looked at Michael and David, who were not given the same instructions. Why did I have to go? Just because I'm the daughter and not the doctor? I wasn't an idiot. I could preserve Dad's dignity without having to leave the room. I could help change the sheets. That was something in this whole fucking mess that I actually knew how to do. I even knew how to do hospital corners from my days as a candy striper in high school. I could avert my eyes when I needed to. I was a grown woman. But Mark pulled rank, and his command left me feeling like a reprimanded child. Instead of launching the arguments that rushed up my throat, I reverted to my accustomed role as the little sister. I was defenseless against my brother's wielded power, and I slunk out the door without speaking. He pushed it closed behind me. Now, as I walked down the stairs, farther away from the only place I wanted to be, I said the words again. It's not fair. Even as I spoke, I could rationalize Mark's actions. He wasn't trying to hurt me. He thought he was doing the right thing for Dad's sake, maybe even for mine. Except he wasn't. He had no idea what it felt like to be me in the face of Dad's illness. He didn't know what it felt like to sit and watch Dad weaken day after day and be helpless to do anything. He didn't know because he got to do something every day. I knew that balancing the role of caretaker and son must feel impossible to him. But as the rest of us sat around waiting, he got to walk into that bedroom and be the one who knew how to make dad sleep more comfortably, knew how to help him breathe better, knew how to adjust his IV or fix his catheter. He knew how to take away dad's pain. And because he knew what signs to look for, he also knew how to answer the looming question I was too scared to ask. But he didn't know what it was like to be me while he was doing all that practical work. What it was like to feel so useless. He didn't know that when he'd snatched away my one chance to help, he'd taken something bigger from me. And I wouldn't tell him, even with the sharp sting of the separation still burning. What good would that do? The burn in my calf muscles and the fresh air in my lungs felt good as I sprinted down Julie's walk a few strides behind Chris. We passed the car-crowded driveway, slowed to a walk, and drew in deep breaths. Five other houses besides my parents sat on this quaint cul-de-sac. I looked toward the upstairs dormer window. The blinds that had been closed for days were still closed. Sweat beaded on my forehead and ran down the sides of my face. With my hands resting on my hips, I circled the street a few times to bring down my heart rate. Chris matched my gait and ran his fingers through his damp hair. We didn't speak. We'd talked ourselves out for the last four miles. I wanted to stay outside a little longer and feel the late morning sun on my skin while I pretended everything was okay. My eyes returned to the upstairs window. Everything was not okay. 
The status of dad's pneumocystis pneumonia had not improved and he was not responding to meds. He was besieged by an endless fatigue and unable to get out of bed. He couldn't breathe without oxygen and his body was getting weaker. There was now quiet talk of postponing Mark and Ellen's wedding. Dad could be dying. The waiting for confirmation of this fact one way or another was agony. Each day melted into the next with little change and little for any of us to do. When dad was awake, which was not often, we took turns keeping him company, trying not to exhaust him with too much commotion. A few days earlier, my sister-in-law, Yvonne, had gone out and gotten some craft materials, and she and I had spent hours painting terracotta flower pots on the back deck. I have little artistic talent, and my pots could have been mistaken for a child's grade school project, but I was grateful for something that kept my hands busy and distracted my mind. Running was another respite. The daily ritual provided an escape from the leaden uneasiness that filled every crevice of the house. This morning, Chris and I had woven through the hilly streets of my parents' neighborhood, pushing our bodies hard, relishing the chance to focus on something solid, movement from point A to point B. Looping the cul-de-sac, I savored the fleeting high of the endorphins coursing through my system. As we circled back toward the house, a neighbor walked down his shrub-lined driveway toward us, wheeling his bicycle beside him. I didn't know him well. I didn't know any of the neighbors well. Mom and Dad had moved to this house when I left for college, and though I came home every summer and lived at home for a year of graduate school before Chris and I got married, there weren't many opportunities to interact. Everyone on this street did a good job of keeping to themselves. This man was some sort of software engineer and worked from home. Most of his work appeared to involve tinkering with the 30-foot sailboat parked in his driveway. He was married with two young kids and an old blind cocker spaniel that liked to pee on my parents' front lawn, leaving dead yellow patches in the grass. My dad vowed to plant a stake in the neighbor's yard with a stern note expressing his displeasure at the dog's behavior. My mother talked him out of it. Good day for a run, the neighbor said, stopping in the street beside us, noticing our sweat-soaked running clothes. It is, I said. I was in no mood for small talk, especially with someone I'd never talked to before. How's your dad? We heard he'd taken a bad turn. He looked pointedly at the extra cars in the driveway and lining the curb in front of my parents' house. I was caught off guard. Even though dad's HIV status had become common knowledge with the publication of the book a few months earlier, I'd been too far away to be part of the big reveal or to receive the response of support from friends and strangers near and far. I was startled to be confronted with overt questions about dad's health and talking about it without restriction felt new and strange. He's not doing very well, Chris answered for me. I threw him a grateful look. Ah, oh, shit, the neighbor said, shaking his head. I figured as much when I saw the out-of-province license plates. He leaned on the handlebars of his bike and tilted his head toward the sky. God, it's so awful. I can't stop thinking about it. His voice shook a little. Yeah, I said, unsure how to respond. His eyes turned back to me and probed mine until I had to look away. I sensed he was hoping for comfort. I had none to give. He swept his hand across his forehead. I'm all fucked up about it. All fucked up. Yeah, 
I said again, like this was a perfectly normal conversation to be having with a stranger. We stood, quiet and awkward, and I stared at the scuffed toes of my sneakers. Chris cleared his throat. The neighbor didn't move. I now understood that this guy was going to stay there, expounding on his fucked upness, until I took the initiative and moved things along. Well, I guess we should probably get back, I said. All fucked up, forever thereafter, known only in my family as AFU, straightened his shoulders and swung his leg over his bicycle. Right, right. He looked past me to the house as though staring hard enough might allow him to see inside. You take care, he said. Take good care, he repeated. He settled on the bike seat and clipped his feet into the pedals. Tell your dad we're thinking of him and praying for the best. I will. Thanks, I said, and watched him ride up the street. He disappeared around the corner, and I turned back to Chris. We both started laughing, but even after Chris had laughed himself out, I couldn't stop. I doubled over, gasping, with tears streaming down my cheeks. The knots in my chest loosened with each labored breath. The release felt good. When I was able to speak... I looked at Chris and said, seriously, he's all fucked up? The rally. I stood with the other members of the wedding party in the vestibule of St. Andrew's United Church in Miramichi, New Brunswick, waiting for my turn to process down the aisle. Dressed in a gorgeous white raw silk gown, her expression hidden by a misty veil, Ellen waited a few feet behind me her arm linked with her father's. In one hand, I clutched the tight bouquet of pink, peach, and cream roses against the white lace top I wore, and with the other, I smoothed the front of my coral silk skirt. The rich notes of the processional floated from the organ, and I watched my mother's careful walk, her hand gripping Mark's arm, to the front pew of the church where my sister-in-law, Yvonne, already sat. At their approach, a side door opened and Chris appeared, handsome in a dark suit, his head slightly bent, pushing my dad's wheelchair in front of him. Dad sat straight in the chair, but the stiff line of his neck and shoulders betrayed the effort of the exertion. His eyes were trained straight ahead, and his face was fixed with a tight smile. At the lip of the door's threshold, a wheel caught and stalled their forward progress for a moment, and Dad's smile faltered but Chris managed to back up and then maneuver the chair and guide it across the front of the sanctuary to meet Mum at her seat. As Mark took his place next to the line of groomsmen and Mum sat down, Chris positioned Dad's chair next to her. He locked the brakes, removed the portable oxygen tank that Dad balanced on his lap, and set it at his side. He straightened a long plastic tube that attached to the tank and wound up to the clear nasal cannula, that looped over Dad's ears and stretched across his face. Chris stepped past my mother and took his seat next to Yvonne. As he sat down, his body relaxed. I released the breath I'd been holding for the maybe 20 seconds the whole procedure had taken and blinked back tears that threatened to spill down my cheeks. Nobody in that sanctuary would question the reason I might be crying as I walked down the aisle. The miracle of Dad's presence in this moment, after he'd come frighteningly close to death only weeks before, was not lost on anyone, but it was critically important to Dad that his illness not cast shade on the joy of this day. Two weeks ago, Mark and Ellen were making plans to postpone their wedding, when, to everyone's surprise, 
dad's health took a turn for the better after a last desperate effort to fight off the pneumonia with a high-intensity round of new IV antibiotics. His fever broke. He became more lucid, started eating again, and the color returned to his skin. He regained some strength and could sit up for short periods at a time. However, he was still plagued by fatigue and slept for large portions of the day. His lungs depended on supplemental oxygen. This rebend felt transient and fragile. Dr. Mary, Dad's doctor, who'd been making house calls during the crisis and knew all of the stakes, was not in favor of him trying to make the four-hour trip for the wedding from my parents' home in Halifax to Ellen's hometown of Miramichi. The stress of the drive alone could kill you, he told my father. Making the wedding happen with Dad there seemed an unworkable endeavor. And then a family friend made a generous offer. He owned a luxury RV equipped with all of the comforts of home, including a spacious bedroom with a king-sized bed. What if he drove my dad and mom to and from Miramichi? Dad could sleep the entire way. They could drive straight through without having to stop at any public rest areas where dad's compromised immune system might be exposed to infection, and he wouldn't risk overworking his weakened lungs. This arrangement was enough to convince Dr. Mary to let dad go, as long as he adhered to stern guidelines for limiting his activity during the weekend festivities to the rehearsal, the actual ceremony, and the early part of the reception, and used a wheelchair at all times. The wheelchair was a blow to dad's ego. The show of having to be wheeled down the church aisle, his portable oxygen tank in tow, at the center of everyone's gaze, was his nightmare scenario. When we'd returned after the wedding rehearsal the day before to the hotel room where he was resting, propped up against a stack of fluffy pillows and informed him of the church setup, he'd latched onto the alternative of making an inconspicuous entrance in his wheelchair through the side door at the front of the sanctuary. I want it to be Chris, Dad said when Michael and David started volleying the logistics of how one of them would wheel him in and then join the rest of the groomsmen. I want Chris to push me in. He turned to where my husband sat in a chair near the bed. That okay with you? Yes, sir, Chris said easily. Okay, then. It's settled, Dad said, and the conversation shifted to how many cars we would take to the rehearsal dinner so that Mom and Dad would be able to bow out when he got tired. From where I sat at the foot of the bed, I reached for Chris's hand. Something big had just happened, but I might have been the only one who noticed. Chris and I met on my first day at Gordon College in 1990. He was a sophomore and a member of the orientation staff. The orientation committee was throwing an ice cream social for the new students, and he was standing behind one of many tables lined up in the large gymnasium, wearing a stained apron and scooping chocolate ice cream from a huge vat into styrofoam bowls. You're Michael's sister, right? He asked when I approached and reached for a bowl. I'm Chris Brooks. He smiled and put out his hand, and I took it. His fingers were sticky, but his grip was strong. After a dizzying day of moving into my dorm room, saying a tearful goodbye to my mother, and trying to acclimate to my new surroundings, his steadiness felt like something I wanted to hold on to. That he was a familiar name in this crowd of strangers helped, too. My brother had graduated that spring with a major in economics and a minor in music, 
and Chris's parents, both music professors at the college, had basically adopted him into their family in his last two years there. When I decided to follow in my brother's collegiate footsteps, Mike urged me to connect with the Brookses, letting me know that they were among a few people he'd confided in about Dad's health. Over the following week, Chris and I bumped into each other a few more times, and after two weeks, he asked me out. As I got to know him better, I was drawn to his authenticity and warmth. With three gregarious older brothers and a father like mine, I was not accustomed to Chris's way of being in the world. Confident enough to steer clear of the spotlight at social gatherings and not out to impress anybody. Thoughtful and observant, dependable and even-tempered, comfortable with quiet and slow to enter a conversation. But it put me at ease. That he knew my biggest secret without me having to tell him made him someone who knew me. And the relief of being known allowed me to open up to him in ways I'd never done with anyone else. We dated for the next three years. For everyone who knew us in our day-to-day lives at school, we were a solid match, a perfect blend of personality traits and obviously devoted to each other based on the strength and longevity of our relationship. Unfortunately, My parents were not among those people. For most of those three years, they were disconnected from our growing relationship. They lived 11 hours away, and though Chris visited with us in Nova Scotia for a week or two during the summer and for a few days at the holidays, they didn't get to know him as I knew him. And because he wasn't like what they were accustomed to either, he wasn't an easy sell. He seems a little quiet, my mother said after their first meeting. My father wasn't as delicate with his take. What's he going to do with a history major? Are you sure he's not just boring? I can't imagine what it was like for my father to live with the ever-present knowledge that he wasn't going to be around to make sure his children's lives turned out okay. What I do know is that my brothers and I lived under the pressure of his fears, stretched at the seams to please him. He was preoccupied about helping us plan for our futures, He scrutinized our decisions with an intensity that bordered on obsessive, including our choice of partners. Even without the boundaries created by Dad's health situation, our family was not an easy one to break into. Exceptional was the established status quo. The messenger way, effusive responses to pretty much everything, exhibition of talents on demand, endless competitive play and banter, and well-defined, ambitious plans for future success, preferably ones that involved a professional degree, was not Chris's way. He was nine years older than his one brother, so never had to vie for position in his family. His parents were both professional performers, his mother a former opera singer and his father a choral conductor. And while they'd inhabited center stage, Chris had grown up in the wings. In contrast to my idyllic childhood summers with family at a secluded cottage on a coastal river, he spent many of those summers with his eccentric grandparents on their farm in Pennsylvania, while his parents toured Europe for weeks at a time. He'd learned how to be comfortable being alone. My family dynamics suffocated him sometimes and made him turn inward. Acutely in tune with their responses, I feared my parents read his distance as disinterestedness. Can't you just be a little more outgoing, a little more like my brothers? I pleaded with him during a visit. 
one of the only times when I ever felt my confidence in my feelings for Chris waver as it battled against my need for my family's, specifically my father's, approval. This is me, Mel, he sighed, not hiding the hurt in his voice. I can't be someone I'm not. It took getting away from the force of my family's expectations to solidify my feelings that Chris was exactly the partner I wanted him to be, to understand that being with him made me better. I wrapped my arms around this one radical act of rebellion, and instead of waiting for my dad's approval, I allowed myself to trust my own instincts. A month after graduation, Chris and I got engaged. Even though he helped us with the wedding plans and made an effort to welcome Chris into our family, Dad didn't hide his enduring doubts, patriarchal as they were, about what kind of future Chris might be able to provide for me. How will a master's degree in medieval European history lead to a stable life for my daughter? He'd asked Chris outright not long after our engagement. As someone who'd known his own career trajectory from age 15, accepting Chris's plans to pursue this graduate degree without a clear picture of the end game was tough. Dad's fears made it tough for me too. I wanted to reassure him, and I wished he could believe in Chris the way I did. I didn't have to see the future etched in stone to know that we'd be okay wherever we ended up. I just worried that my dad wouldn't be with us long enough to know it too. But then, dad asked Chris to push his wheelchair into the sanctuary on Mark and Ellen's wedding day. As I watched dad and Chris's brief journey from side door to pew, the tears that threatened to undo all of my careful makeup held much more than gratitude that my father was still alive. I could read the vulnerability in dad's sunken eyes could see how off-balance this whole situation made him feel, and I understood that choosing my husband for this task was Dad's way of showing me that the steadiness I felt the first time I took Chris's ice-cream-covered hand in mine was something Dad, too, wanted to hold. This is a section opening that quotes Mary Oliver's poem, Heavy. That time. I thought I could not go any closer to grief without dying. I went closer, and I did not die. Mary Oliver Not the most wonderful time of the year, 2013. The smell of ground coffee beans and the murmur of small talk filled the space as I stood in line inside the crowded Starbucks a few miles from my home. Can I get something started for you, hon? The cheerful, thick-necked guy behind the counter asked when he caught my eye. A white bandana wrapped around his head and covered the top half of a mop of shoulder-length curls. I chose not to question the bandana's effectiveness, nor be offended at his use of hun, since he was the link to my much-needed caffeine fix of the morning. Venti Earl Grey tea, one tea bag, with room for milk, I said. Anything to eat with that? he asked as I handed him my credit card. My eyes swept the glass case to my right. Giant muffins with crumbled toppings, flaky pastries, chocolate-covered squares, oversized cookies, those cake pops covered in colorful sprinkles. They all looked delicious and fattening. No thanks. I held my resolve. Just the tea. I stood to the side and waited for my drink. 
A tall man in a neatly pressed black suit stepped up to the counter and gave another barista a complex coffee order that included the words red eye and two shots of espresso. He was the kind of Starbucks patron who made me feel subpar. My standard tea was dull in comparison to the array of coffee drinks on the menu. I loved the smell of coffee, but the only way I could stomach the bitter taste was to infuse it with cream and enough sugar to make it like ice cream. Here you go, hun, bandana guy said and passed me my cup. I brushed past Mr. Red Eye and the other customers in line and headed toward the small bar with the insulated pitchers of cream and milk and small square boxes overflowing with packets of sugar and sweeteners. It was only when I started to pour the skim milk into my tea that I noticed the bright red cup for the first time. Images traced in gold floated across its surface, poinsettias, ornaments of various shapes and sizes, symmetrical snowflakes. You've got to be kidding me, I said. It was November 4th. The trees were making that shift from the October peaks of red, orange, and yellow to the rusted, earthy tones that signaled late fall. I was still basking in the glow of mothering success I had achieved with the handmade Despicable Me minion Halloween costume I'd labored over for Lily the week before. On the counter, in my kitchen, covered in saran wrap, sat two remaining pieces of the round, homemade jack-o'-lantern chocolate cake. Earlier that morning, I had posted my midterm warning grades for my college students. Christmas was nowhere on my radar. Until now, Bandana Guy handed me a decorated Starbucks cup, and the holidays were here. Apprehension stretched across my shoulders and threaded into my chest. Too soon, I thought. I am not ready. I looked at the other customers who milled about Starbucks and sipped from their festive seasonal cups. Was I the only one who felt blindsided by this sudden reminder of the approaching holiday season? Was I the only one who struggled to balance the joy I was supposed to be feeling with the dread I was actually feeling? Was I the only one who wanted to yell, can we just slow things down for a second? There are so many things. And I wanted you to keep going through these three chapters because of all the things that um, get encompassed in these pages. And... I'll just start at first with the one that we just heard from with um, in 2013, which is clearly on our timeline. This is after your dad has died. And this is way after. Yeah, way after. And so, and he dies right before Christmas. Yeah, 10 days before Christmas. So to telescope what's going on, I guess, for our listeners. You're like, oh, no, I'm not ready for this because this is a a hard time to go through again. And I have to sort of also point out it's like we're not that far away from. I know. (laughs) November 4th as we record this episode right now. This is going to be the November episode. And this is just not an uncommon thing that holiday time is so hard. And so... One of the really um, transformative things you do in your writing is you have this amazing way of like taking this little moment and 
and zooming out the way we pick with our phones and like zoom in on this moment of I'm in Starbucks, I'm in my own head, I'm doing this thing. And all of a sudden I get this cup in my hand and I'm like, what? Right. You know, sharp contrast between the outer world we exist in and the inner world in our heads as we go through all our days. And it's like, wait a minute, I barely finished Halloween. Can we please slow down? Right. I'm not going to let you talk just yet because I'm going to. So the other chapters, um, a similar really powerful effect and, and in a more broader cinematic way, I will say with the, how you show the power of Chris coming into your family mm-hmm. and this scene at the wedding, you are near the end of your dad's life. Your family is experiencing your dad coming closer to death. And with that big question mark of like, we don't, we don't know how much longer we have, but again, a lovely pause in a way to roll back the clock and say, this is how I met my husband. And here's what a tiny little moment meant in a larger way at a really important time, like for, you know, a big family event, the marriage of your brother and to your husband coming. I mean, your to be husband come. Wait, were no, you he new? was my husband at that point. He was yeah. your mu- okay, so your your new husband at that point within mm-hmm. this family, um, which is sounds like a really challenging family to navigate, being on the inside of and the outside of, and and that's the other larger point because I like to see you show us your interiority. One of my favorite writing words, so well with the way that you would say to Chris, can't you just be a little more outgoing with, you know, you feel the pull of, I know what my family is thinking and wanting, and I want to give them what I know you have, but we need to really speed this part up. Right. I need them to see you. And, oh, that family pressure, which I think so many people, I'm sure, relate to in many different ways of- working in a new person to a really, um, I I don't want to say complex, but like a a rigid set of family rules. Mm -hmm. So, and then I'm going to take one more step back to the first chapter we heard and talk about the difference between insider and outsider of this little whiplash moment you have from having to go home again to your dad's bedside when you don't know when could be the end of this long, long illness that had no precedence at this point in, in time. And they had put your family had published quote unquote, the book, but you didn't get to catch up with them on what that meant. And then suddenly a neighbor is saying this stuff to you. Oh my God, that, I mean, (laughs) amidst deep sadness, you have this surreal moment of someone interjecting themselves saying, oh, I'm all fucked up. I'm all 
Right, right. Yeah. Oh my God. Somebody who doesn't even know us. But, you know, like he's being honest, right? Yes. And knowing that this is my neighbor has. Yeah. And it's sort of like a funhouse mirror because, on one hand, you have someone making an honest effort to be genuinely empathetic in a situation that's very difficult. And of course you want to, what I get riding along on your shoulder through this whole book along with you is how deeply you feel everyone else's emotions through this. Like you survived in your family by holding up the family code. Right. And so that's one of my big questions, both with how you wrote this and with your experience, because point of view, I wrote down as you were reading, you were very sensitive about the point of view of your brothers, Mm. of the neighbor, of everyone else. And this book really is a long I'll say fought for, that might be overdoing it, but I think a fought for way for you to have the voice of your point of view mm-hmm. as well. Right. Do you have any thoughts about being an outsider within your family and yet within your family, it it's so clear to me, I've been thinking about this outsider insider thing a lot lately. And I think that The other experience is that you are clearly an insider with your family. Like your family is, it it feels very close. You all get together. You, you continue to have reunions and you have a a large rope. You know, I picture it as this large, robust, close knit set of people who are very committed to each other. And so that's a wonderful support to have. So you are at once an insider in a very loving, supportive place, yet you are also an outsider within that place too. I don't know. Any thoughts about all of that? In some ways, we were all outsiders. Mm, We all had that insider, like we knew how to interact with each other. We interact really well with each other. We've grown up with a certain way of being with one another. But because this wasn't something that we were all talking about together, we were all kind of journeying our own parallel paths with it. And so in some ways, we were all outsiders too, right? We didn't have a clear way of connecting over this shared experience. And so I don't think I was singularly an outsider in any way. I Mm. think all of us had that sense, you know, where outside of the family unit, we were coping with this experience in our own ways. We were processing this experience in our own ways. And I think what's always been hard for me is that we didn't really do it together. Right. You know? Right. right. So what about the silence part of it though? Because that's the part where there was this family code of silence. Right. And that you did feel your outsider brand, if I want to call it that, it might not be fair. Your aspect of what it was, was that you wanted to talk with it. And it was hard for everybody else to talk. It was. Well, so, I mean, the initial silence and secret keeping began out of necessity, right? right. HIV AIDS exactly. in the you know, mid 80s, early 90s was a dangerous disease to have. 
you know, in terms of cultural societal response. And my dad wanted our family to escape as much of that ostracism as so many other people suffering from this disease were publicly facing, right? And so his purpose in keeping it a secret and keeping us silent about it was a protective purpose, right? Right, Like he he was trying to protect us. And so there was a need for that silence and it, you know, and in my own writing, I talk about, like, I saw examples where that need was there. Right. But also because my younger brother didn't find out about my dad's illness until seven years in to the 10 year period of time, there was a necessity for silence within our family. So David was only eight at the time that my dad was infected. And so they didn't tell him at that point and they waited seven years to tell him. And so the silence was internal as well because there weren't these moments where we could all sit down and discuss what was happening Yeah, because that would have excluded David and to include him would have been to inform him. And my parents didn't want to do that. Yeah. Uh, so layered. Yeah. So layered with the caution of care, you know, because it's sort of like we want to protect those that we are closest to. And yet in doing that, it's a, it's a really fine line. Well, it is. And I think it took me, and I might've mentioned this in the last time we talked, it took me a long time to realize that I can hold the fact that my parents were doing everything in terms of the silence and secrecy based on excellent intentions and what they knew to do at the time, right? Like I can hold that with, and yet there were still some pretty distinctive consequences of having to bear that silence. You know, I can hold both of those truths together Mm -hmm. and not feel like they have to be combative, right? Right, Like there is no blame. I place no blame. Do I wish things had been different? Absolutely. Do I wish that, you know, the culture in my family was one that was more open at the time and in those, in those circumstances? Absolutely. But I also understand why it wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. How, how do you, how do you today hold those two things together? Cause those, those are really challenging things to hold next to each other. And I think that that is another thing that's at the core of so many writers experiences are holding these vastly disconnected emotions. Right. Well, I think, I mean, I think it's the understanding of, you know, it was a particular period of time, right. Where, you know, nobody was talking about these kinds of issues. You know, you look at even just the way the cultural conversation around LGBTQ plus issues has expanded in the last 15, 20 years. Right. And, you know, in 1985, 1990s, those weren't conversations people were having, right? And so because this disease was so closely connected to that community, that silence was surrounding this disease in so many ways, you know? And I think, so so I'm able to acknowledge kind of the cultural time period in which I'm able to acknowledge like the generational things, you know, Mm -hmm. the families my parents grew up in and how from their families, the amount of openness was dramatically different for them and us, right? And so every generation things change. And so I think because I'm able to acknowledge it in a way that like, I understand it, 
You know, like I understand the choices that had to be made. I understand that they were working in circumstances of which there was no roadmap. You know, there was nothing that said, you know, here's how you handle things. You know, therapy was not something that in the 80s and early 90s, a lot of parents were getting for their children, right? Like, would we do it now if, you know, this was in my family? Obviously we would, right? But it's a different, it was a different time. And so because I can have that understanding of their motivations, of their intentionality, I don't have to sit with anger and blame. But I also have to, in being honest about my experience, I have to acknowledge that despite lack of intention to do so, despite the fact that I don't blame them, harm is there because of that silence. Anybody who's had to carry suffering in silence knows how damaging that can be, you know? Yeah. One of the other things that became much clearer to me in reading the book than before reading the manuscript in that smoothing, I guess I would say, is the picture of your love for your dad Mm -hmm. and for who he was, that just sort of blossomed. That was much more, to me, in the forefront. And in thinking about roles in the family, there was an illusion in what you said to the role that you played as the the bringer of joy your middle name is joy and your dad called you melanie joy bells and so we saw in that scene by the perhaps deathbed you bringing him joy again right and we know through writing memoir and through i i would say we as the the people who study this craft I think part of the reason we do it is because we each hold a, a perspective that is not necessarily that of our family or friends or other people in the dynamics for which we are speaking of. So do you think that you saw a particular side of your dad that was unique to you and because I wonder about that as part of this book. Sure. I mean, I think I think each of my siblings and I, we all have had different kinds of relationships with our dad. You know, I think I think being the only daughter for me created a bit of a unique relationship, you know, both good and bad. Probably, right. Yeah. right. Like yeah. right. There was probably a higher level of protectiveness over me because I was the only daughter. But we all had different relationships. And I write about this in the book too. I think watching my own daughter's relationship with my husband Mm. has helped me to really kind of see that father-daughter bond in a different way, you know, and and help me to kind of think back and reflect on what my role was. And, you know, we all play family roles, right? Like we all have expected roles. I mean, that's family dynamics 101 you know we all have expected roles and you know mine wasn't a forced role I was a person I was a joyful person and so it wasn't hard for me to be in that role in my family I think what made it hard 
was feeling like I couldn't be anything but that. And that, mm. again, you know, that lock that's mine, right? Like nobody forced that on me. Nobody said, well, you always have to be cheerful. You always have to be the sunny daughter. But because I knew the impact that had, I made the choice that I wasn't going to reveal the other pieces of myself. Yeah. This might be a tough one, but I so see that. And it's clear, like, we evolve into these roles because mm -hmm. of who we are. But is is there anything you regret about having that role, even though it is clearly still is part of who you are? I think I regret, you know, in hindsight, which is so hard to like actually put yourself in. I think to myself, if I had gone to my parents and told them how difficult a time I was having, right? If I had actually asked them for help, I 100% know they would have given it to me, right? Mm -hmm. Like I don't have any doubt that they would have done everything they could to make the experience better for me. Yeah. But I never asked. I never asked for it, you know? And so I think maybe the regret is that as, you know, a teenager, I didn't know how to articulate asking for help. And even as a young adult, even in my 30s and 40s, I didn't know how to ask for help. You know, it took it took a lot of therapy. It took a lot of processing and figuring this out and looking back at that time to kind of figure out the changes that I need to make if I want to be open with people and have people know me. Yeah. Well, and I guess that that maybe does speak to when you do start figuring these things out and what you didn't do and needed to do in spite of understanding all the reasons why there was a very deep well of sadness there mm -hmm. um that i don't know i don't want to take us down to <laughs> dark a path, but you did tell a story at the book event that I attended with Susan Connolly about when you first were working on your MFA program with her and introducing yourselves in that program. I don't know if you want to give a little bit. Sure, sure. So you talk about that well of sadness. I was not really even aware that it was there, right? When I started my MFA, my dad had been dead for 18 years and I thought I had moved through that grief. I thought I was kind of at a different place in my life that I understood it. I kind of moved past it, so to speak. So, you know, to tell that story in brief, Susan Conley was a visiting faculty member at that time. She wasn't on faculty at Stonecliffe, so she was just there to do a seminar. And we were in this room and I was kind of at the edge of the room and before she got started, she just went around the room asking people what they were writing. And it just turned out where I was sitting in the room, I was like the last person of like maybe 50 people answering that question. And when she got to me after listening to all these other people who seemed really confident in the things that they were writing and, you know, had very clear plans, I went to open my mouth to speak 
And I just started sobbing, you know, mortifyingly so. Like it wasn't pretty crying. It was like I was all in to the crying. And I think I kind of, you know, managed to choke out like I'm writing about my dead dad. But then I proceeded for 90 more minutes during that seminar to just sob. And I couldn't get out of the room because I was like packed in this corner. And but what that showed me was like that was the first time that I opened that lid a little bit on that well of grief. And even just speaking of what I was planning on potentially writing, suddenly it was all welling up. And so it was really unexpected. That for me, you know, that's why it was very fortuitous that I started therapy at the same time as I started my writing program, not on purpose, you know, because I actually did not start therapy thinking I was going to be talking about this at all. I had other reasons. I had chosen to try therapy for a little bit and I had no idea that that's what my therapeutic journey was going to be about. But thank goodness I had both of those (laughs) things happening, you know, concurrently. I know. Sometimes I think what I will call, what I do call the universe allows sometimes these supports to happen in ways that we need when we need them. So that is an interesting thing that that was the first time. I mean, I can very much relate to sometimes you, when those tears, first of all, take you completely off guard, right? Like, Oh, I didn't know. And also being the last one at the whole huge room of people. Oh my God, what a nightmare. Right. And sadly, like that wasn't the only moment of inconvenience <laughs> that week. Like the same thing happened in a workshop setting. Yeah. I mean, it, it was like all of a sudden, these very raw, fragile emotions were like right there at the surface. And it was, again, really unexpected because I did not think that that was inside me as deeply as it was. What kind of writing was happening? Like, were you writing in those moments? Do you recall thinking like, oh God, something big is happening here. I need to take advantage of this. It may or may not have been that clear. It was, you know, very precarious writing. I think I would put the word. Like I, I was like dipping in really gently to the memories because I recognized like it was causing me to have a psychological breakdown, basically, you know? So the initial writing was in many ways surfacey. I think it wasn't like I wasn't writing important things, but I wasn't really getting to the heart of, of those experiences and memories, but it was like dipping in enough to start looking at it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then having the faith encourage to trust yourself that you could go deeper into those. Well, and it really, and that really came with the conversations I had for writing hard stories because that Mm. emerged in the middle of my MFA program. Right. And it was really because I was having such a hard time with coping with the emotions that kept coming up every time I tried to write something hard that I kept thinking like, how did all these other writers do it? (laughs) Yeah. And I wanted to ask them. I really wanted to ask them. And so that book started not with the intention of being a book at all, but it was very much a selfish endeavor for me to just talk to other writers who had done this work. And because every single one of them provided me with the reassurance that if you keep going, you're going to get to a place that feels better than what you're feeling right now, you know? 
you're going to have to go dark to find the light beyond it. And they all told me some version of that same story. And so it was really that that gave me the fortitude. Had I not had those conversations, I don't know that I would have kept going. That's just another facet of your story that I love so much because I often describe it as you're feeling around in the dark, like, right. what the heck do I need to do next? And you innately reached out to other writers. Were you recording those conversations? Like, what? Was. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, what's beautiful about those is, you know, I write these up as profiles and the things that I include are primarily things that I think would be helpful for other writers. But I have these beautiful recordings of like the second half of these conversations where they're just talking to me about my book and my story. So, oh, my God, yeah, that is precious. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So as I was saying before, I'm only halfway through writing hard stories. I don't think I was aware that I stopped when I stopped, but as I told you, for almost all of them, I think I would read your interview, then I go read the memoir, then I come back. And so at some point later on, it could very well have been like once your book came out, at one point I was like, I know I'm halfway through, like where did I leave off and why? And so I went back and... I was right in the middle of your conversation and the entry you have on Abigail Thomas. Mm. And I was like, oh, because I remember when I discovered, I say discovered because I couldn't even remember, where did I first find out about Abigail Thomas? Well, it was your book, duh. And so it's funny because you talk about safekeeping and the three three dog dog life. Yeah. And for some reason, I don't know why, I decided or ended up reading what comes next and how to like it. Well, another nonlinear story that was, I mean, her voice, everything so disarming. I don't know. I can't. It's hard describing these writers in a word, but um, obviously amazing and what a story and so then I got off on some other jag that I went on all these other directions when I came back and saw I was in the middle I was like oh well I want to finish right (laughs) the conversation that Melanie had with Abigail Thomas so one of the things she said was basically where she said oh here it is If you write a memoir, you are bound to discover things you wish weren't true. Mm -hmm. That reminded me of what you were just saying about going deeper. Right. Um, Were there things you discovered that you wish weren't true? I think that, I mean, I, I think I'd been working a long time under the kind of push back against the story itself, which was like, I wish this story had never happened. I wish that by wishing it away, I could make it not have happened, you know? And I think what I really had to come to in the writing for me, you know, when I first started writing Hard Silence, I think I thought, you know, I'm going to write this and then I'm going to be able to leave this experience behind, you know? Mm. And And I think because I thought, you know, it'll be done with, I can get rid of it, you know, and I think what I discovered, and I don't know that it's a wishing it weren't true kind of thing, but it was more of an understanding 
of what is true kind of thing Mm. is that I understood that this isn't a story I can leave behind because this is a story that is a big piece of who I am and it has shaped me in very fundamental ways. And so rather than writing it and getting it out of me and getting rid of it, I wrote it and was able to kind of reintegrate it in my life in a way that I can handle and I can understand better, you know, and that I can articulate better in terms of how it has shaped me into the person I am and, and recognizing that, you know, I don't want to leave it behind because it's so much a piece of who I am. Wow. That's really big. I mean, that's, that is a discovery that you, yeah, that you didn't necessarily know that you knew. Right. Well, I don't think I knew it until I started writing, until I really started getting into the depth of the writing. I think I, I really thought that I was going to be able to like purge it from my life in some way. Right. And the other thing that she had said about pulling it from the depths. So she has this beautiful quote that, you know, it's much scarier when we leave it in the basement. Right. right? Like right, right. The things that hide in the basement are much scarier than when we pull them out and we, you know, put them in the light and actually look at them. And she, I think she makes the comparison to like, you know, a horror movie, like the suspense of a horror movie is right. when you can't see the monster, right? Yeah, you know yeah. the monster's there. It's when the monster comes out that you stop being scared, actually, right? And so, yeah, yeah, so yeah. it's the same thing for these memories and these experiences. You know, when we keep them hidden away, they have so much more power than when we kind of open up to them and acknowledge them mm-hmm. and pay attention to them. Yeah, that's also true. And I think that it might be a very long process to getting there. Well, it is. I mean started writing in 2013 it's 2023 that this book is being published so yeah the other thing that I wanted to just sort of acknowledge and in the interesting twist which is a little bit like what you just described um is that going from a place where you chose to remain silent in your life's work as a teacher Mm -hmm. And I'll say a spokesperson, you've really become quite the person speaking out about stigma of AIDS, um, about everything that's related to a disease that is not about who a person is. Mm -hmm. And so I just find that like, wow, you now have a huge and impactful voice. And what does it feel like to be in that role, invited to speak at the, you know, conferences and such that I know you've spoken at? You know, it feels really good because it feels like a very authentic place for me to be, right? Like it's something that I know really well and and it feels good to be able to speak about this thing that I know really well. But I also, you know, I've said at a lot of my events over the last few weeks that, you know, my particular circumstance is unique, you know, you know, my family's circumstance is unique, but family secrets are not unique, right? right? Right. Silence in the face of suffering, as I said before, is certainly not unique. And so that there's a universal connection of this story to everybody's stories in a lot of ways. And I think 
what I appreciate is the opportunity to stand up and talk about mine in the hope that I'm opening space for other people to talk about theirs, you know, that that's what I'm hoping when people see me authentically speaking out of the silence of my experience, that maybe it gives them a little boost of courage to do the same. Exactly. Well, you are a huge boost to encourage me to keep going. Thanks, Michelle. I keep going. I mean, and also so many of the other things I wanted to say, I feel like it's probably a good wrapping up point for us. But, you know, you are such a wonderful teacher. You're just so, you see each student for who they are. You're so um, in the trenches and so encouraging and wonderful teacher, wonderful spokesperson. And um, thank you. And I had wanted to talk about narrative medicine too, because I think that's, you know, to see the medical part of this. That'll be another podcast. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Is there anything else you would want to say about your story, about writing this, that you would say to encourage other writers who are working on their hard stories too? Well, absolutely. I mean, thanks again for your very kind words about me as a teacher, but I think we relate to the people who are teaching us who we know have been where we are. And I can tell my students, I've been exactly in those places of despair, of not knowing how to enter this story, of trying to figure out what to do with the words on the page, right? I've been there. And I think having that experience to bring to the teaching realm is really valuable. You know, like I can bring that experience in. And I guess what I keep saying to students, to other writers who come to me and ask is, you don't have to know the finished product right now. You just need to have the opportunity and give yourself space to just start writing. And, you know, I think a lot of times we're very immobilized by the idea that we need the big picture. And we don't. I mean, I'm a perfect example of that. It took me a really long time to figure out what the story was that I was trying to tell. And, you know, one of the things that that I'm encouraging my students right now is just what is the big question that you're looking to answer? And, you know, Mm. for me... The big question I was looking to answer was, what are the consequences of silence, right? Mm. What happens when we're made to be silent? And so if you've got that kind of big question, the writing comes underneath that umbrella of that question. And so, you know, kind of start with a question that you're really looking to answer. And your writing may not necessarily come to a solid answer on it, but it, it, it will at least give you some headway in if you start looking at what is it I'm really trying to figure out here. Yeah. Yeah. And what I have found at least up to this point is that at least it takes you to the next step of what you need. Exactly. No, I mean, maybe the big question is still looming. I don't know, but I do feel like that's very wise guidance to say, what do you need to do right now? Right. And also, Write what feels important right now. And yeah, I, I mean, that's yeah. not coming straight from me. I had a wonderful first semester mentor during my MFA who said that to me. He said, you know, just write where, where the heat is. Write what feels important. And don't think about it in connection to the greater story. So, th- I mean, that's why I have a scene of the echocardiogram that I had to have like literally a week after my first, yeah. you know, MFA residency. Yeah. That was one of the first pieces I wrote. And I didn't really know why I was writing about it. But 
it has a connection. It made a point of connection in the story. So, ah, Melanie, thank you so, so much. Thank you, Michelle. Thanks for having me again. At the end of these conversations, I find myself just overcome with so many points I always want to follow up on and expound on. And sometimes it also becomes so clear to me after the fact of how many questions are, of course, centered around themes that I am trying to work out for myself, like that whole outsider-insider thing. I was thinking of how so often I feel like an outsider. And of course, I get all grumpy about that. Yet, I also realize I don't often ever really want to be an insider in whatever sort of arenas we find ourselves in. So that's a little contradiction of existence there. Another thing I've thought of after listening back to Melanie's words again is that whole thing about writing a non-linear story and how life rarely makes sense when lived in chronological order. What do you think about that? Life dishes out some pretty tough stuff. And when it's coming at us one day after the next or one week or month or year after the next What happens is you can kind of feel just buried in the onslaught of it all. Writer Gina Frangello one time called it the tyranny of the and then. And then this happened and then that happened. But if we're going to make any sense of the events in our lives, the unfortunate and the tragic and the traumatic and even the joys too, I think it makes a lot of sense to... Put all the items down on index cards and reshuffle the whole mess and sort it out. And maybe then we can see some themes emerging from the madness of it all. All right, that's enough of me going on. I will say thank you so much to Melanie Brooks again for contemplating life's hard stories with me. I will put links in the show notes for both of her books, A Hard Silence, and her first book, writing hard stories. If you've enjoyed this episode of Daring to Tell, you may be interested in getting my monthly newsletter where I mull over other thoughts related to each episode that comes out. I have recently renamed it The Redo. You can get it at my website, michellerado.com. One more Rado to thank, and that is my husband, musician and songwriter Phil Rado. He writes songs you can hear on Spotify and on Bandcamp, and sometimes the songs he writes seem to match up really well with some of the things that we talk about on this podcast. Today is one of those times, and so I will leave you with this demo version of his song called Cry Like a Baby. My biggest thanks, as always go to you for daring to listen. Catch you next month. Cry like a baby, cry like a child. The years tumble by like in a nursery rhyme. It's all just a sweet lullaby, and it's okay to cry. Watch a baby's eyes 
watch a baby's eye Hopeful and clear, careful and wise Our very first cry says to the world we've arrived Who will we love? What will we see? Hug every day, there's no guarantee It's okay to cry Cry like a baby sometimes I keep my head above water and I hold my breath if I must I keep my head above water And I hope it's enough Should be enough Cry like a baby And keep being born Give love, get love, muscles to mourn, and watch a baby's eyes, watch a baby's eyes and cry. Like a baby sometimes. <laughs> 